You know, it's good for me to do this as a reminder on occasion, but uh, not long ago I was asked, Blair, why do you give up your Sunday mornings to drive all the way out from Madison up here in order to participate in church and to be involved in church life? And uh, I I wanted to respond to this individual. I I let them know. I said, well, you know, I want you to know it's not because this is a building full of great people who really love me, which you are. You are great people that love me. And it's not because this is a great organization to be a part of. But we all gather here for one singular purpose, and that is to make much of Jesus. We want to demonstrate that Jesus Christ is worth our time. And that we want to come here and we want to hear from his word and and how we can conform our lives to his and learn to be more like him. And so this portion of our service that that we're about to enter into where we hear a sermon, it's not just because we like to listen to the sound of our voices over and over again. We want to hear what God is telling us through his word. And we want to become more like that. And I'm going to be the first to confess we're not perfect at it. We're not always good at it. There there is still some hard-heartedness within us that we still have to work through. But we know beyond a shadow of doubt that this book contains the very words of life. And so we want to come to it. We want to listen to it. We want to apply it to our lives all so that we can make much, much of Jesus and show how satisfying he is to ourselves. If if we can, let's, let's enter into a time of prayer just to receive God's word. Lord, we humbly confess to you that that we are not worthy of of such love, of such direction to to hear these comforting words, but Lord, you have provided them for us anyway. Lord, you have preserved your word throughout the centuries so that we might hear your voice and it might still speak to us and still provide direction for our lives. But more important, it is this word that reveals to us Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior the only one who can save us from our sins. And so, Lord, we pray that that as we enter into this time to hear from the Lord Jesus, you would lift the veil, that, Lord, you would open up our hearts, that we would see the truth that's contained inside of this word, and that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would apply it to us so that we may make much of Jesus. We pray this in the finished work of Christ alone. Amen. Well, over the last few weeks, we have been looking at Jesus's parables in Matthew chapter 13. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, please turn back into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. Context is always, always key to interpretation when you study your Bibles. And for our text this morning, that is no different. So let me just remind you a little of what we have learned so far. In this chapter, there are eight parables. And we've said that a parable is a comparison of two different objects in order to teach a spiritual point. And each one of these parables compares, in this chapter, the kingdom of heaven to a different object. Now, the first four parables were delivered only to the crowds, to the general population. And as we read in Matthew chapter 13, verse 34, Jesus always spoke to the crowds in parables. And we gave three reasons why this was so. Number one, we glean from verses 34 and 35 of the Old Testament prophecies that they foretold that the Messiah would speak in parables. Jesus is the Messiah, therefore he should be speaking to the crowds in parables. Number two, 
Jesus also says in verses 11 through 17 that the mystery of the parables will only be revealed to the elect. Only those who have the Spirit's work within them would be able to fully understand their meaning and their spiritual application. A few weeks ago, we saw from Psalm 78 that as a parable there comparing the history of Israel to God's salvific work to come in King Jesus. And those who have the Spirit revealing the truth to them can connect the dots to God's redemptive plan. And lastly, number three, we said parables should be striking. Either the characters within them, the events they portray, or the truths that are revealed are unexpected to the hearers. Imagine the surprise that came to the people when they heard that the landowner in the parable of the tares goes to the expense of securing two harvest, or the kingdom of heaven spreading upon the earth like yeast in dough, or in another parable later on, it's the Samaritan that is the good neighbor, not any of the Jewish religious leaders. Now, within the first portion of the chapter, we have an interlude given just to the disciples in verses 10 through 18. In our first pass over this, we said that Matthew, as the author, did not want to lose the momentum gained from the delivery of this first parable, but that this conversation in those verses most likely took place within the house spoken of at verse 36, when Jesus was speaking to his disciples alone. And if that is the case, then Jesus delivered to the masses these four parables, the four soils, the wheat and the tares, the mustard seed, and the leaven, one right after the other, in that order. Then Jesus and his disciples withdraw into a house, and inside that house, his followers are alone with him. And they get the special privileges that the larger crowd does not receive. Behind closed doors, he explains to them the first two parables. And then he delivers four more parables that are just for their ears. These are for his followers alone. Therefore, the application of each must take into account that these are intended for the redeemed, for the elect, or the saved. If the Holy Spirit is at work within you, then Jesus is teaching that this is how you should respond to his truth. Now, unlike our previous messages, I'm not going to have us examine each parable with its own sermon. But we are going to take this section together as a whole. I want us to briefly look at each of these remaining four parables and then talk about why they were given to the disciples. How would they have understood them? Or we might even say, what should be our takeaway as followers of Jesus when we hear them today? Now remember, all eight parables form a chiasm and are paired together in reverse order. Now if you've been following the arguments over the the last few weeks, you might call them Ryanisms, but I kind of call them at our house Ryanisms. It'll come to you in a second. Those pairings will help us a little bit here to understand the applications when we talk about hidden things and small things and things that are separated and things that produce fruit. So let's look at the first one. Like the leaven in the flour, this too is an item that is hidden. But unlike how leaven suddenly transforms the substance, when this is found, the person acts on it. He is not passive, he is active. Here is a man that is walking in the field and he stumbles upon hidden treasure. And the odds of such a thing are astronomical. But there was previous precedent if you discovered something that had been lost to a previous owner. Now, rabbinic tradition says that if one finds a treasure and he picks it up, then he is obligated to bring it before the owner of the property. 
However, if you notice in the text, he doesn't pick it up. He just covers it back up so he can purchase the field. Now, we would say that is unethical. And Jesus will use several questionable situations within his stories to get your attention. Examples abound, like the thief that comes in the night in Matthew chapter 24, or the shrewd manager of Luke chapter 16, or the unrighteous judge in Luke 18. Remember, he wants the parables to be striking to the listener. But to be sure, the point of the story is not what is or is not ethical here. It is the extreme action of the finder. He sells everything he has just so that he can buy the field here. So he is exchanging all that he possesses in order to acquire the treasure that he found. It's so valuable that Jesus adds that he does this with great joy. You can almost see him in his mind eyes, can't you? As he's selling each possession and he's getting the money for it with glee, he says, I'm almost there. I almost have enough. It doesn't matter if he has to sell it all. He must have that field because of what he receives. The second parable is similar in that it is compared to something valuable. Like the mustard seed spoken to of the crowd, it is something small. This is a pearl merchant, and he knows his products. In the first parable, the finder stumbles upon the riches. Here the man is deliberately searching, and he has found the best pearl he has ever seen. Therefore, he sells everything he has to buy it. He goes all out. Some might think that he's crazy, giving up all of his stuff just to buy something you can carry around in your pocket and you could lose. But he doesn't think so because he knows what it is worth. He is set for life with this purchase. The third parable of the net is paired with that of the wheat and the tares. The word for net in the Greek is the word sagane. It was a dragnet that would be spread between two boats and could potentially grab anything that wasn't small enough to be strained through it. And then it would be drawn up toward the shore where it would be dragged up the beach or up onto the dock and the sorting process would begin. And Jesus likens this product, uh, process with the same exact words that he describes in punishment concerning the tares back in verses 42 and 43. The focus here is on the state of the kingdom at the end of the age. I'm going to say that again. The focus here is at the state of the kingdom at the end of the age. Out of those within the kingdom, some will be good and some will be bad. And we must be ever vigilant to make sure we are in the kingdom with the right credentials. That's important. We must ever be vigilant to make sure we are in the kingdom with the right credentials. Because there are some that are among the church that are not in the church. Now, I've already talked about assurance when we did the sermon on the wheat and the tares a few weeks ago. But briefly, one is in the kingdom when they have given up their right to assume that they should be in the kingdom for any other reason than faith and atonement of Jesus Christ. You are only in the kingdom if you submit to the king. You cannot earn this. But when you discover it and you assess its value, like the previous two parables, you give up all to obtain it. If you don't, then you risk the fiery furnace of hell that Jesus talks about where there is constant tears and anguish. And it's at this point, 
after these first three parables that Jesus turns to his followers and he asks in verse 51, have you understood these things? And they all respond, yes. He's laid out the matter before them. He has listed the expectations. The kingdom of heaven demands your all. It must have greatest value in your life. To do otherwise means you are at risk of judgment and being excluded. Jesus always, always, he makes sure that his followers understand what is involved in coming after him. There are no surprises. It concerns me greatly when people are quick to offer an invitation to come to Jesus without explaining the implications of doing so. I find that many do not understand that Jesus demands that you sacrifice all in allegiance to him, that he must be the greatest value to your life. Now, this might seem a little strange that Jesus would ask such a question here of of understanding to those who have been following him. Surely they would have known all this by now, right? But just like the contemporary church, there are those who claim to be part of us but are not of us. And the same was true then. There were people that liked the idea of Jesus, but when it came to give up all, they weren't too sure about that. Around this same time of Jesus' Galilean ministry, we also have the events of John chapter 6. I'm going to ask if you will, turn to John chapter 6 in your Bibles. This is found on page 892 of your pew Bible. It's going to help you if you can follow along with this. This passage is perfect for us to gain understanding of what this means. Now, this conversation between Jesus and the crowds happens just after he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. They had just witnessed one of the most stunning miracles of Jesus' earthly ministry. It was a great time for Jesus to speak of bread and of manna coming from heaven. So Jesus offered up this challenge to him. We'll, We'll start it in verse 51, John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum, which is in Galilee. These words might have been spoken around the same time that Jesus was delivering his parables to the crowds. Now, I admit, this does sound a little creepy, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood. But considering that Jesus spoke symbolically in parables to the crowds, it's not so unusual. We know on this side of the cross that he was referring to himself as the sacrificial lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. It would cause us to see why God implemented the feast of the Passover in the first place. At Passover, the the Jews had to shed the blood of a spotless lamb and then consume its flesh in one seating. 
They did this by faith, believing that the death of the lamb was a substitute on their behalf that would allow the angel of death to pass over them. So too is Jesus the perfect offering to God to allow God's judgment to pass over us. And just as manna gave gracious sustenance of life maintained by God as the Jews wandered in the wilderness, just as that happened, it was figurative of Jesus being the bread from heaven that sustains us in our present life. The words we read from Paul, thus you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We say that every Lord's Supper. We now celebrate that event of Christ giving himself up for us so that we might live eternally through the Lord's Supper believing that Jesus died in our place. But at this time, saying such a thing was just too much for some of these disciples. It offended their sensibilities. Remember, if you're in the kingdom, you must submit all to your king, trusting him with everything, even your own conscience and your sensibilities. You may think, well, those people don't belong in the kingdom. That's not up to you. It's a matter of the king's choice. You might think, well, I should be allowed into the kingdom for this reason. Well, unless it's as it's specified by the king, that's not up to you. That's the king's decision. Look here again at verse 60. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, note here in Jesus' response, much like the parables, only elect will get this because they have the Spirit at work inside of them. Verse 61, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted by him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So you see, there were some following, yet were not a part of him. And even though Jesus challenges them and says, do you understand, we know there will be at least one among them in Judas that will lie and say yes. But those that do understand the blessing, they get it. It is worth all. In fact, check out this next section in John 6, verse 67. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So we know even within the twelve, there was one that claimed to be of them, but was not being authentic. Now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 13. Again, Matthew chapter 13, this is page 819 of your pew Bible. Jesus concludes this section with one last parable of the master's treasure. The comparison here is a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven to the master of a house who owns great wealth. Now, when a rich person has something special, they wanted to show it off. It's, it's no different now than it was then, right? People want to flaunt what they got. 
And this master wanted to bring out his treasure out of the vault, and he wants to show it off, the things that are old. Maybe he had like a Renaissance painting he wants to show off, and things that are new, maybe like an iPhone 12 to show that they've got. Now note that Jesus is comparing this rich person to a scribe. A scribe was someone that was trained in the scriptures. He was expected to recite the word, to write the word, and make opinions on the word. And here it says specifically, a scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven. In our present language, we might say a scholar discipled in the kingdom. One who would bring out from God's word the beauties of the blessings of old and how Jesus fulfills them all. As D.A. Carson says, quote, in discipleship to Jesus, recognition of the revelation he is and brings and submission to the reign he inaugurates and promises are necessary prerequisites to understanding and bringing out from oneself the rich treasures of the kingdom. When you have Jesus, you look at the scriptures and you see Jesus for who he is and what he offers and promises. And it produces the fruit of giving up all in order to have him. You can't help showing off the treasures of Jesus Christ. The discipled scribe evangelizes and teaches. It becomes just a natural expression of who we are from the inside out. You can't help but desire to share Jesus. Thus fulfilling the great commission that's found at the end of this book. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. All of us, in some sense, become teachers. You have a desire to teach about Jesus, to make him known. He is your treasure. He is your life. And, and just to make a final point here in verse 53, we see how Jesus concludes this sermon by leaving the house to go to Nazareth. It makes a point. They had their chance to hear him. Some follow and some do not. Some see that he is worth all. Others do not. There is no straddling the fence with Jesus. So when we consider these four parables and what they communicate, we should ask ourselves, why did Jesus deliver these only to his followers? What, what were their intended purpose, and what should we contemporary Christians take away from them? Well, I've meditated on this a while, and I think I've arrived that there are six lessons from these parables. Now, here I go. I'm going to do them very quickly as I move through it. But number one, the parables presuppose a realized eschatology. Eschatology is the word that we, we talk about that refers to end things, the study of the end times. To Jesus, the kingdom of heaven has been inaugurated already. There is something that has already occurred, and he wants his listeners to act upon it. However, though it has began, there is still a future fulfillment when the angels come and sort the fish, so to speak. As John Stott says, there is already but a not yet aspect to the kingdom of heaven. Already our kingdom has come, our king has come. He has arrived, and we must acknowledge and pledge ourselves to that king before our deaths or before his return. Otherwise, we're going to be considered bad fish and tossed out. So the kingdom is already here with the arrival of our king, but its full consummation has not yet arrived. Number two, the kingdom is worth giving up all in order to obtain it. The kingdom is worth giving up all in order to obtain it. Too often, we are more concerned 
about our own kingdom than the kingdom of God. We, we want to establish ourselves in comfort. We want to be well thought of by others. We, we want to have the prestige of our culture. We want safety and security. But notice our first parables say that all that belonged to the field worker and all that the merchant had, all of it had to be given up in order to obtain the kingdom. It's a good evaluation question. What is it you want first and foremost? Philip asked that question when we sang our hymn earlier. If the answer is not Jesus, then you must really consider what it is you're holding on to in comparison to Christ. One or the other has lordship over you. I guarantee it. One or the other, either Jesus or what you value above Jesus, has lordship over you. But remember, in Jesus, the rewards are eternal, just as are the consequences. Jesus told another parable on another occasion. It goes like this. It's from Luke 12. The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. The missionary martyr, Jim Elliott, said it best. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Which brings us to the third lesson. Your treasure might seem small in appearance, but it is worth everything. A pearl might be small, but it is the quality that matters the most. A mustard seed is tiny, but it can grow into an immense tree. To an outsider looking in, the faith of Christians may seem to offer little in return. Yes, they, they may see the joy of being redeemed. They, they may witness the love and the concern we have for one another. They may, they may even envy that we have a book that gives us clear direction for our lives. But they also see the suffering, the persecution, perhaps the sacrifices we make materially to send out the gospel, and they say, well, look at that. They died with very little. They may have been happy, but surely happiness can be obtained some other way. What they can't see past their veil of unbelief is that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God prepared for those who love him. Or that according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. It may appear small in the eyes of others, but to the one who is aware of its true value, they know it is worth everything. A fourth lesson is that we must be aware at all times there are those who belong to the kingdom and those that don't. And just as another parable that our Savior will tell in Matthew chapter 25 about sheep and goats, there'll be some that will call Jesus Lord, Lord, and did not mean it. There are always pretenders among us. Now, I don't want that to cause you anxiety. Jesus didn't reveal this truth for that purpose. But it's good that, that we always question why we believe we are citizens of the kingdom. 
We must always remember that we are saved by grace, not of ourselves so that no person can boast. The gospel should make us feel alive and share it with others. After all, it's their only means of salvation as well. So we should never presume. I have numerous good people, ethical people, who I thought for sure that they were saved, and yet they come up to me later and they say, well, I never really believed. I I behaved this way because that is how I was raised and it was expected of me. But I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. But now I get it. Now I see true salvation, and I want to pledge my life to him, and I want to be baptized. So perhaps that's you today. Now you see the glorious gospel, and you're even willing to give up your embarrassment in order to throw yourself before Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy. Now, if that is you, there is not a single one of us that would fault you for that because we all have had to do the same. In fact, it's always a good idea to make sure that you have the right credentials to get into the kingdom. Make sure you have the right passport. And it's only one that can be stamped by the blood of Jesus Christ that can get you in. A fifth lesson is that Jesus is the key that unlocks the Old Testament promises, the current promises, and the promises that are to come. He is of immeasurable worth. He is glorious. He is the one that must be magnified. And if you have a relationship with Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. You look back into the scriptures and you see how the Father was faithful through the Son in keeping his promises. And you cling to Jesus on this day. And even though the world is troubling, you have taken heart in the promise that Jesus has already overcome the world. You find yourself surrendering more and more of yourself so that he might be known as greatest worth in your life. And in concerning your future, it is your desire to be with Jesus for all of eternity. Suddenly, this place just doesn't seem satisfying at all compared to being with Jesus. Jesus is your glorious king, yet he is also your closest confidant. He is always for you. Uh, Imagine having a world leader as your best friend. All he has within his possession is yours. He wants to see you blossom and succeed, and he will devote a wealth of resources to see it occur. We see these promises in Scripture and that Jesus is the key to all of them. Just like Psalm 2, where we were told to kiss the Son. Jesus is the Son of God. We submit to him. And when we see them, we pull them out like a rich person boasting over their possessions. We see Paul do this over and over again, don't we? Let let me read one of my favorite passages where Paul is just whipping out his riches in Christ. Listen to how many times Paul says, in Christ or through Christ, or in him. This is Ephesians chapter 1. Listen to these riches. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. That is rich. That is wealth. In fact, there's a part of me that wants to recite this passage of Scripture a little bit like Thurston Howell on Gilligan Island. Do you remember him? Lovey, be able to, lovey, even as he chose us in him. I'm not going to do that to you. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us 
for adoptions as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, meaning in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, you Gentiles, you outsiders, you non-Jews, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance and until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Brother and sister, you are extremely wealthy. If you have Jesus, the Son of God, you can't be any richer. And living for his glory, we are like billionaires showing off all the riches we have in Christ. Gates, Musk, Buffett, Bezos, they have nothing compared to us. And finally, the last lesson is that we're called to be ambassadors for his kingdom. We are to be trained scribes for the kingdom, making known his great riches. You cannot help but do this if you know Jesus. You have to. If he is that valuable, if he is worth all, if he is that glorious, it has to be a part of your everyday speech and actions. Peter put it this way, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That proclamation is not optional. In fact, it should just be a natural expression of who you are. And when we look at the lives of his followers in the New Testament, they understood all of this. They realized their Messiah, their king had come, and they were his heralds. They spoke about him. They wrote about him. And though they lived in rags, they displayed the glorious riches that they had in Christ. They gave all so that they might make him known. So for us, we must ask ourselves, do we love Jesus? Do you love him more than this, whatever this is? Could your discontentment that you're experiencing right now is that you are struggling with, that you've, you've placed your value upon something else other than Jesus? By the way, that goes for a religious system. You can get real enamored with a disciplined lifestyle. But Jesus is not calling you to a disciplined lifestyle. He's calling you to him, to find him so that the Holy Spirit might work in you so that that lifestyle might be displayed out of you. You come to Jesus. Do you think somehow that God owes you something? He's given you his own son. He's given you all that you might obtain all. Oh, come to Jesus.
reorient yourself to Jesus. Take a moment today and, and quit thinking about what you don't have or what you're not getting or how this is just rubbing you raw in the world and come to Jesus and think about, look what I have. Look what I have. Look what he's done. Look what he did specifically for me. And look what he has prepared for me. Look what he has in store for me. Allow Jesus to become your all in all. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Lord, that I can sit here with my brothers and sisters and I can confess alongside of them. I don't always make you my all. We don't always do that. Lord, there are times that we are forgetting you when we just drive in the car and traffic is in the way and somebody irritates us and we think we should have our own way and demand our own way in that moment. But Lord, you call us to surrender all. You call us to, to surrender our pride. You, you call us to surrender our self-righteousness. You call us to surrender our possessions. You call us to surrender our relationships. And you promise that it is worth it. You promise that it is much better. But Lord, I can, can get out of myself and think that I know what is better, but I thank you for your word that constantly reminds me that it is worth all. You are worth all. And so Lord, help us to magnify you in this moment. Help us to see your son Jesus, the entryway to you, Lord, as just being the most marvelous thing that could ever occur. And allow us, Lord, to give him praise, to honor him, to allow our lives to reflect what we see and what we know of Jesus Christ, the fairest of all. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.